This episode of Bibliophiles is brought to you by Libromania, a podcast for book lovers from the Close Reads Podcast Network. Through conversations with contemporary novelists, poets, and biographers, as well as collectors, designers, and others, Libromania is for the person who believes that good books are an essential part of the good life. For more information, go to closereadspods.com or subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you dial up your favorite podcasts. Welcome to Bibliophiles, a production of the Center for Lit Podcast Network. In today's episode, the Center for Lit team continues its quest to discover the great ideas in books of every description, ancient classics to new bestsellers, epic poems to bedtime stories. We're glad you came along. We hope you find this discussion as provocative and inspiring as the books themselves. Want to join the great conversation? Stay tuned. You've come to the right place. not let Ian watch. You wouldn't the let Little Ian Mermaid. watch The Little Mermaid. You're, you're not wrong about The Little Mermaid. That one's not awesome in that regard, even though the music is no, amazing. It, it makes a mockery of fathers. It really does. Fathers but are weak. I See, I want to like work towards reinstilling a love of Disney in everyone because everyone in our market is so poo-poo about Disney. Mostly and because of the princesses. Wrong. You know, you just the princess thing got old. I love the princesses. The princesses um, were great. I loved tangled, them too. but Tangled. Yeah, Tangled's pretty good. Can I get a witness? Tangled's great. And, but you guys, Hercules is literally about a child who's a god, the son of the god, but he ac- accidentally becomes a man, only he's not entirely a man, and then he grows up, and then he falls in love with a woman who ends up not being worth it, but he, so he's like striving and trying to get back to be a god again, and he can't do it, and he like is perfect and does all the heroic things but then his Zeus tells him well you haven't been a hero yet and he's like what the heck I'm being a hero but meanwhile <laughs> he fell in love with this trash girl and she's trash she's Just trash and uh she tricks him into giving up all this power she on sides the with his life. enemies I mean she, she double crosses him yeah, she's like a Samson and Delilah kind of story but yeah. he becomes a god when he sacrifices his life for her wow Really? A little Christological imagery? It's hard to argue with the Christological imagery. It's pretty profound. Hercules. But I just, I want to just draw our attention back to the reason we started having this conversation, which is that I, a 26 year old man, just saw Hercules for the first time. Well, that's Hercules your own really, fault. Yeah. <laughs> I, you've Her- not been hey under now. my roof for a hey, long time hey, now. You've hey, been living hey, on your hey, own hey. for years. For at least two years. I haven't <laughs> even gotten to deliver the premise of this whole argument yet. You can't shoot me down before I'm done. All right, oh, go yes, ahead. I can. <laughs> the premise of the argument was, I used. I literally thought this. I thought that all the great Disney movies came out before my time and that there weren't any written around my time. My time, by the way, since I was born in 1992, was the 90s, during which span Alan Menken was reigning and ruling at Walt Disney Studios. All of the great Disney movies came out when I was a kid. Look, I just wasn't allowed to watch any of them because they depicted rebellion or some other (laughs) heinous sin. Hey, you can't actually blame us for your ignorance. You drew a conclusion based on the fact that you saw these movies at a particular time. You could have looked up the publication dates at any point. You're grown up now. It's very The point here is you didn't, 
It was a rule. We weren't allowed to watch Aladdin. <laughs> well, there are some reasons there. Dad was worried. Or the Little Mermaid. Oh, there. I can explain both of those things. <laughs> Dad was worried where Aladdin was concerned that there was a blurring of the lines between good and evil because the protagonist was a thief, and he didn't want what Not I was concerned about because he was starving. But what starving. I was concerned about there where was no Aladdin for was him. concerned was that ginormous snake. <sighs> I, I was afraid she'd be. I mean, these I were the years that Ian, you were totally waking up at night with nightmares about bears, and I was going to let you watch something with this ginormous snake that was as big as my house. Going, ah. I don't know. You took me to see <laughs> Anastasia. Still one of my favorite movies to this day. I don't think I did. Yes, you did. I did. I have distinct yeah, memories. Oh. Distinct memories of you taking me this, to the theater no in the middle of the afternoon to, to watch Anastasia. This does sort of subtly or not so subtly bring up the question of age appropriate yeah. versus eternally exactly uh, universally compelling right just because we wouldn't watch it when you were two doesn't mean that we wouldn't let you watch it when you were a teenager it doesn't mean we didn't well, go sneak out and watch it by ourselves after you went to bed <laughs> how right. do i know that and, aladdin had and a snake meanwhile, in it i don't continue in my late 20s to blame you for the fact that i haven't seen it in the last six years of not living under your roof it's just those <laughs> they fall down the interest level list after a while oh, but they i do i i will say i have been and i mean many many times Put in the position of looking at current friends and, compan and companions who are referencing things that, that are current to my era and having to say, I've never seen that, and having them go, what? <laughs> who are your parents? <laughs> so you I just want to pass that along. Just those two. It was basically Aladdin and the Little Mermaid and Hercules. Okay, three. And Hercules. For that, Hercules. I can only say, Ian... We'd probably do it again because you only have limited knowledge and you're just, you're punting. Every move is a punt you're just when you're the to parent do the of young children. You, can. you know, well, we were trying to protect your little psyche. Well, I saw Hercules last night and ladies and gentlemen, go watch it with your kids. It's awesome. <laughs> Regardless Hercules, of their age. Awesome. And bye bye. If you haven't seen The Little Mermaid, go see it too. It's great too. Even if That's there is a I've really heard. weak daddy in so it. So I've heard. Oh, no, sir. How about Aladdin. Should I see that one? I, it's still not my favorite. What? Robin Williams? Eh. Great performance as the genie. Yeah, it was pretty good. I love good. Robin Williams, but that Steve was Steve Martin my was in that too. Look, mm -hmm. I will give you this one thing though. I'll give you this one thing. I was not restricted from listening to all of the wonderful music. And so now actually going back and watching some of these movies for the first time, it's like discovering that there's more to these great tunes that I already knew about, mm -hmm. which is kind of fun in its own in its own way. That is fun. Yeah. Well, it's Bibliophiles, everyone. You've joined us in the middle of a very <laughs> heated, uh, traditional Andrews-style uh, conflagration conversation. You know, what I will say is that we never did really keep you from reading anything that you wanted, though. You read pretty much what you wanted, with the exception yeah, of maybe... Sure, sure. Um, well, that's not entirely true. I didn't let you read Tango Makes Three or Heather Has Two Mommies or anything like that. Here we go. I showed you Tango Makes Three. I read it and then handed it to you and said, Mama, I don't think this is a very <laughs> good book. That is how that went down. And then I wrote a letter you to the editor. Me from and... reading it. <laughs> Dude, letters to the editor. There were a handful of those over the years. I grew up thinking that was a totally normal thing to do. You know, people don't do that very often, right? What, well, make their children write letters to the editor? Yes. You didn't write that. The I wrote thing... that. Or write letters to the editor. Take your pick. <laughs> the other thing that used to happen all the time when I was a kid is, see, this is, this is the foundation, people, all you <laughs> listeners. This is the foundation of the really emotional really relationship I bear to art, right? <laughs> is that my mother really takes art seriously, if you didn't already know this. And I remember at one point we were listening to a pop uh, songwriter who shall remain nameless, <laughs> who asked some pretty pointed questions 
uh, at the end of one of his songs. And my mother could not get it out of her mind. She really couldn't. <laughs> so she um, wrote him a letter. Answering them? Answering the questions that he had story. asked at the it's end of this. story. I did do that. And this is not some kid we found, you know, on Spotify. Like, <laughs> oh, this guy's pretty decent. No, no, no. This is a multiple Grammy winning, very, very famous songwriter. And Was it and Bono? She, then proceeded to wait for a response, <laughs> no, thinking that he was going he to get the letter. He was obviously going to get the letter and that it was going to deeply impact the man's soul and that he was going hey, to then write another if album. he had about gotten that letter, it would have impacted hey, his Bono, soul. Hey, Bono, I found what you're looking for. <laughs> it was not Bono. <laughs> oh. We all just walk around in your shadow, my love. That's all we ever do. Just walk around mocking my shadow. <laughs> it's like family sport. Uh, uh, well, that's one of the most um, one of the most stirring preludes to a bibliophiles episode I think I've ever been a part of. When did you start recording? I'm not going to tell you that. You're going to have to go back and listen to the footage. <laughs> I think I know. I think they started recording after I had delivered a succinct attack and during right. their rebuttal. Did you get to make your point? Or did I don't do think I did. Well, let's, why, don't you, why don't we give you one more chance and then we're going <laughs> to address the topic of the day. Go ahead, Ian. One more time. No, I think I successfully made I think all I was trying to say is that it's funny looking back on it, given our stance on literature and all things literary and stories in general, that there were movies released when I was between the age of five and 12 that were aimed directly at me by some of the great story writers and tune writers of the Disney era that I still to this day have never seen because there were rules about it. You poor little entitled kid. Yeah, it's true. And the fact is mom and I both cop to that. And all I can tell you is this, when you're raising a young family and the little kids and their, their souls are on the outside, you know, they're just so accessible to the whole wide world. Your interest in art just takes a nosedive. That's not, it's not true that it takes a nosedive, but it definitely takes yeah, actually, a Actually, that's the irony. Place. I was pointing out an ironic detail because your interest in art didn't take a nosedive. In fact, it was the family pastime. And how did Aladdin not make the list? Hey, can I just point out that you guys are all arguing in front of a girl who grew up watching Aladdin and the Little Mermaid and all of these and like, it's Sinner. not theoretical. I mean, I think she's fine. <laughs> <laughs> well, we didn't know you then. We didn't have the evidence of Emily to contradict us. It's true. It's true. I mean, I probably if your mom and I could get together, there were there were some things on her list that, that she would not that you shall not pass, you know? Cossack's doom or whatever. Oh no. <laughs> keep really... going, keep going. Say Am more. I just making a hash of it? <laughs> Tell me more. Tell me more no, about it. No, I Gandalf. just I see Gandalf standing there saying, You shall not pass. And I think that is every mother that has got that tiny little child with the soul that's on the outside temporarily, who is standing between her child and that thing that could in some way torment or molest their souls. That's Absolutely. what we're trying to do as parents, yeah, right? Way darker sense of humor than yours. So. <laughs> well, I think that's also well, true. Well, I will say that he did let the kids watch with him Blackadder, so I don't know about that whole sense okay. of humor. Not, I did see some Blackadder. It's a little dark. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, Paris, one of us is for the chop. <laughs> Let's face Let's it. Face it's it you. first. <laughs> it's you. <laughs> uh, oh, aren't we supposed to talk about something? We like actually, meaningful? we have a different topic for today. Although I just couldn't, I just couldn't go without recording that wonderful conversation uh, on the relative merits of Disney cartoons, Disney musicals, 
and letting your youngsters watch them. Please don't. Please don't take anything that we've said here on Bibliophiles <laughs> as normative for you or your family. I do hope you enjoyed the little tete-a-tete, a tete-a-tete between the four of us. <laughs> <laughs> Today's topic, however, is what are you reading currently? Not what are you showing your kids or what are you letting your kids read, but what are you reading? And on the hot seat is my lovely wife, Missy, Mrs. A to all her students, mom to Ian and Emily, and just the great Center for Lit denizen of all things literary. What do you think, Mama? What are you reading? Well, it's what I just read. I just finished Lee Finger's new book, Virgil Wander, which I um, picked up in Portland, oh gosh, in the summer, I guess. And it was um, one of those pre-copies, and I brought it home fully intending to just devour it in about a minute and then write a blog article about it. And it just sat on my bedside, and I'd pick it up and read it for about five or ten minutes before I drifted off to sleep at night. And finally realized, I'm not making any progress here. I need to sit down and read this book. This is Leif Enger, who wrote um, uh, Peace Like a River back yes. in 2008, right? Peace Like a River, one of my favorites back in 2008. And he's written... Um, He's written at least one other, so Brave, Young, and Handsome, or something like that. Brave, Strong, and Handsome. I'm sure I, I got that wrong. But anyway, this is his newest release, Virgil Wander. And um, it is about a middle-aged anti-hero, the eponymous Virgil Wander. And he his, his history is he's recently driven his car off a bridge in a snowstorm and nearly killed himself, um, escaping with just this with a severe concussion, thanks to the heroism of a local man who happened to be on the beach, um, just kind of foraging on the beach at the time, and he jumped in the water and rescued him. Um, he's very confused as a result of his head injury, of course, but the injury is kind of a boon to him in some ways because, um, for example, it forces him to invite someone to come live with him, a, a local man, recent friend, because his faculties are um, not what they ought to be. They're so impaired that he does things like um, forgets and leaves milk on the stove one evening and causes a kitchen fire, and just, you know, a couple stuff like that. It's, it's not real safe for him to live alone. So the friendship becomes a real gift to him in a variety of ways. Um, first of all, this character's name is Rune, and he's, he's, um, he's got this simple generosity and a kind of a childlike enjoyment of life that really helps Virgil to see and experience life's simple pleasures in a way he hasn't in a very long time. Um, also, his relationship with Virgil um, brings to light kind of a long-term secret crush that becomes a love interest in the story, and um, that's of interest. So he provokes some things in Virgil that have been dormant, and I think that might be one of the major um, story lines. And I don't want to talk plot here, but just in terms of character development in the story, Virgil is a wanderer. The, the story itself is very, very wandering in terms meandering. of the It meanders along, yeah. And the result of Virgil's head injury is that there's a lack of focus, you know? Um, this person who's been kind of passive all of his life, um, historically retiring, um, all of a sudden as a result of this injury has kind of a raw honesty, like the proverbial gate is down, mm. and the real thing inside just sort of comes out. He speaks his mind in kind of a new way. Um, he he has the character has some ghosts in his past that he's never really dealt with that bring up some um, some God questions 
like um, the problem of pain issue is writ large in the story. His parents were killed in a car accident when he was very young, leaving him and his sister behind. Um, so these questions are real. And his own scrape with death has left him with some, mm, I don't want to call them suicidal tendencies, but he's not all there in some ways. Uh, there's this shadowy figure that kind of recurs out in the water. We don't really know who this is, but there's something symbolic going on here that we need to get our mind around. So, um, so with all this going on, Virgil kind of um, lives up to his name in a lot of ways. What do you mean by that? Um, the story itself, like I said, is very peripatetic, very wandering, but the, the personality is indecisive, passive, and uncommitted. Um, like he can't really get his life off the blocks in a lot of ways. So this story is about what happens when this cataclysmic event occurs in his life, knocks him senseless, literally. Um, what happens to his life as a result? And I don't want to go beyond that really because I don't want any spoilers. The setting though, the setting, um, Virgil actually runs the movie house in his small town on Lake Superior. It's um, Greenstone, Minnesota is where it's set. And it's a historic building and contains some historic memorabilia that seems for a little while to be maybe a, a line of conflict in the story. Um, it turns out to be sort of a digression as far as I can tell. So anyway, there are all of these dangling storylines as the thing goes along that don't really uh, make a lot of sense until you've finished the story and you're looking back on it. Hmm. But I really would um, encourage readers not to let that disturb them because in retrospect, a lot of stories are, um, are more fun to think about afterwards than they are to read. And I wouldn't go so far as to say that I think Leif Inger writes beautifully. I think he's one of the masters of our language right now. His prose is elegant and lovely and literary and um, his imagery is profound, and there are bone mows around every corner. So I don't mean to say that that's absent in any way. It's lovely. But in terms of this particular story, because of the peripatetic nature of it, it's, it's easy to, I think, just get a little lost in the language and wonder what the heck's going on here. And it's not that there's not a story arc, but, you know, the nature of the main character is such that there's indecisiveness and uh, lots of question marks and lots of ambiguity. And when you get to the end of the story, the plot ties up very neatly, but then you go back and you think and you look and it rewards that's what I mean to say. It rewards a backward glance. This in the sense that there were hidden, um, hidden plot moments that you didn't notice, or, um, or hidden messages, themes that you hadn't th seen. It, it, it's rewarding thematically speaking. A lot of stuff about grace in there that's really worth taking a look at. Really? Yeah, absolutely. The nature of the community, the community itself, the people that populate the pages. Um, really affect the setting. They kind of are the setting. Greenstone is characterized as this kind of down-on-its-luck town where crazy stuff has happened. It's, it's, um, it's unlucky in a variety of different ways. And some of the characters that are in this little town, um, like there's one in particular, a Jerry, that is a down-on-his-luck kind of a guy. But these characters that, that come together in this moment are living in such close community that their relationships with one another are really developed. And the opportunity for grace to occur in unexpected ways and unexpected places is ripe. Hmm. 
so, um, so that's fun to chart as the story goes along. Um, a discussion of what human relationship is really, really for and what the nature of love actually is, I think is present in the story. Yeah, definitely. And interestingly enough, one of the major storylines um, involves somebody who's, who has disappeared from that particular locale, but who was very important to it at one point in history. And it charts the effect of that one man's disappearance on that entire community, hmm. which I think is an interesting conversation to have all by itself. You know, that it's, it's kind of, um, it's akin to it's a wonderful life. You know, what happens if, if, um, if one guy just never was born? How would it change the shape of the world? Well, this guy was born, but then he disappears. And for a while, I was wondering, okay, why, why do we keep talking about this guy? He's not even in the story anymore. He's not even a presence. Is he going to come back? Are they going to find him? Are we going to discover what happened to him? But I really think that the purpose of that, that storyline, it really does reveal the significance of one human life in mm. community mm. from my perspective. Mm. And I think that would be an interesting thing to talk about. I wish you guys had read it also because it would be a way more fun conversation if we could talk about it w together. Would you recommend it? I would recommend it. I would recommend it. Um, I remember talking to you about it when you were only partway through and you were unconvinced at the time. Yeah, I remember yeah. that too. Yeah, there was, a, there was a time that I wasn't really sure that I was going to enjoy this book. And I will say that that was partially because I was reading it at night before I went to bed and I couldn't make any progress. <laughs> yeah. Oh man, I got a story uh, like that. You've done that, right? You I'm know, doing you... it. Don't do it that way because it is kind of a wandering tale. It's aptly named. I got a question. The title uh, and the, the, the protagonist's name is very obviously elusive, right? What it... It, would it give away? Would you have to give away plot in order to to discuss the his choice of title for his protagonist or name? You for mean his Virgil? Yeah. Um, you know, to tell you the God's honest truth, I didn't really think about the fact that Virgil, as in Virgil of the Aeneid, um, may have entered into this. Except that it's a, it's a. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know how to answer that question really. Does Sorry, it take I, on, is it like Dante esque? Does he take on any kind of role as guide? I don't think so. Not in that sense. I, maybe in the sense that um, as a result of his accident, he sees things in kind of a new way. Like his experience. The accident was, um, was cataclysmic in his own life. Sure. And it was, it, there was a before an accident, before the accident and after the accident in Virgil's life. And the Virgil that was very sedate and... Um, who ran the local theater and who never spoke his mind and was a bit retiring, um, was gone, kind of buried with the accident. And this new Virgil came out of the accident. So he got eyes as a result of it. Um, it's a journey story mm -hmm. in that sense, a journey to self-knowledge, self-awareness. Um, he's putting things from his past in perspective in a new way and dealing with them in a way he never did before. But beyond that... If there is a relationship between it and the Aeneid, I'll be darned if I noticed it. Interesting. Could it be something like um, how Virgil is the pagan guide? How he's the he doesn't come from the Christian tradition. He's outside of it. Maybe but he still has empathy. that's an interesting idea because 
it does because of the nature of the problem of pain question that comes up in the story. It, it, at times looks back on religion because his parents were Christians and they were missionaries on a missionary trip when they were killed. So that's just fraught with tension, right? How is this possible? This exacerbates the nature of the problem of pain because here they were doing the Lord's work and yet (laughs) they never came home. And Hmm. they left, you know, Virgil and his sister to wonder why and to deal with the nature of God and his goodness. So I suppose in that regard, but I think it would be going too far to talk long about that yeah. because of the the plot points it might give away. What about the what about the issue of uh Inger's previous novel that I think all of us have read, Peace Like a River, which earned him national and international acclaim and um we love it here at Center for Lit. Obviously it's on the high school reading list every year and um you know we talk about it in, in all the different ways we can think of thematically and stylistically and every other way. Do you notice, as you have finished Virgil Wander, the same author trying to do the same kinds of things? Mm-hmm. Or does it, does it represent a break in any significant way from his earlier stuff? No. Oh, no. I hear the same voice coming through loud and clear. Absolutely. Yeah. I see him dealing. Um, he wants to deal with religion in a non-religious way, I think. I mean, in mm-hmm. that regard, Emily, I think, I think that's a good observation on your part the possibility of the fact that Virgil was the pagan guide is an interesting one Mm. that I hadn't thought of. But yeah, I think that, I think he's definitely wanting to deal with the concept of providence, just like he was in Peace Like a River. There's definitely a providential thread, or maybe I could say a providential string that ties the disparate narratives together um, into something like a cohesive story. There's a an image that runs throughout the story as a result of this friend of his that he meets, this new character that's in town, who happens to be the father of the missing guy. And he loves to fly kites. Um, he builds kites and flies kites. So there's always a kite in the air wherever he goes. And the imagery there is just really a beautiful thing. So yeah, I think I think that there's a string, like a the string of a kite that ties all these disparate stories together into a whole. There's an optimistic view of life that doesn't shrink from its obvious content, the the question of pain and suffering. Maybe even uh, an apology of sorts for the the problem of pain and suffering. Mm. I don't know. At any rate, the story feels very redemptive to me. Mm. Um, maybe the necessity of grace in relationship and community, as I mentioned before, or the ubiquitous need for grace. I think I'd say that the story is about faith as it really is instead of faith as it ought to be, mm. which kind of, it, that's suggestive, right? Without giving anything away. <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think he wants to probe not the Pollyanna perfect Christian faith, but he wants to probe um, the reality of faith in a fallen world, which is much less Pollyanna mm-hmm. when it comes right down to it. I know. No matter how you look at it, even though the tail's a little breezy with that kite up there in the wind, it really does belie some darker ghosts. Um, there are these kites that dance in the sky, but sometimes they draw electricity, you know? There's there's fire that you have to play with even when you're you're trying to, to do the thing free and easy. Um, Virgil's journey from life to death might be wandering, but I think that it ultimately hits the mark in that regard because 
that is the nature of life. We, we don't any of us know where we are at any point in time. We're kind of wandering through, um, seeing everything through a glass darkly, right? Mm-hmm. So I think it's ultimately more realistic hmm. in that way than a pat narrative might be. I actually read an, um, an interview with Inger this week from a website called The Rabbit Room. And Inger was talking about this work. And he said that um, where this work was concerned, he thought it might be his most Christian work, but his least religious work. And he made this statement. He said, quote, tragedy is tethered to beauty and in fact, joy. Tragedy is tethered to beauty and in fact, joy. I thought that was um, profound and lovely simultaneously, Mm. just like his book, Profound and Lovely Mm. at the same time. I have a question, but Emily, you're in line ahead of me. Go ahead. I was just going to ask if you liked it better than Peace Like a River or if you still like Peace Like a River more. I have to say Peace Like a River remains my personal favorite from Inger's work, but I, I definitely would recommend it. I think it's a good read, a good effort on his part. Um, I want to read it again. And I don't say that very, very often of um, newer works of literature. Usually recent works of literature tend to be one-time reads. They, they lack, I think oftentimes they lack a lot of um, depth that would support rereading. But I will reread Virgil Wander. Interesting. My, my question had to do with that, a similar theme. Um, you just quoted Inger as saying something along the lines of tragedy is tethered to beauty and in fact joy. And it brought to mind a line from, uh, is it Brothers Karamazov? Dimitri says, in suffering, seek joy. Yes. Right? I mean, that, it, that seems elusive to that. It's Father Zosima. It's Father Zosima. That's what it is. Speaking to Dimitri, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's where I got that. Yeah. Um, do, you, do you see Enger's work as giving a similar, a Dostoevskian meaning to that connection? The connection between tragedy and joy? Yeah, I do. Yeah, I But you can't do. explain it without giving plot away, I'm sure. Well, I don't want to give you any plot, really. I mean, I've already told you who he is, where he lives, about the community. Uh, I've mentioned Rune and his kite that he sends up there on a flyer. You yeah. have. Um, the imagery of that kite is just beautiful. I mean, you've got this kite dancing and pulling in the wind, sort of like energy on a string, right? Very suggestive. Um, he uses really suggestive theological language that imbues the work with all kinds of depth and consequence and intensifies the character's inner conflicts. I, I, it's a lovely image. What will you read next, given your experience with Virgil Wander? What will I read What does next? it make you want to go do next, literarily speaking? Well, I can tell you what I'm reading right now, the oh. new one that's open on my nightstand even as we speak. Go. <laughs> so I recently went and saw the new Mary Poppins movie which I felt very skeptical about before I saw it. Back to movies. Disney movies, too. Disney movies. Ian, you can't see this one. This is not appropriate Beginning and ending with Disney movies. I have to tell you that it was the most, most delightful movie experience I've had in years. I think the movie is pure joy. I loved it. And it made me go out and get the Travers series, and I'm reading through it again now. Again? I'm having for the first time? Um, You know, I looked into it when I was very young, but it's been so long ago, I didn't remember it. I couldn't remember how many of these things that showed up in the movies were actually from the books and 
um, how many were invented by Disney. But what I'm discovering so far is that they are right from Traverse work, and I'm having a ball. In fact, I was reading it this morning and went down to teach Charlie his government and sat down and opened Mary Poppins and said, we're going to start our government class today with this. <laughs> and proceeded to read to him for about 30 minutes. This is my senior in high school reading to him about, you know, the scene where they, where they go see Mary Poppins' uncle. And he's laughing. And it's like the laughing gas scene. He floats up to the ceiling. And the kids float up to the ceiling. And oh, then yeah. Mary Poppins. And then they have their tea up out in the air. And it's awesome. We laughed so hard, Charlie and I did, just rereading it. So anyway, that's what I'm reading right now. It's a that's little bit awesome. less um, grave. That sounds delicious. <laughs> it is delicious. It's it's like a romp in the park. And um, that's kind of what I'm looking for right now because the weather is dark. Uh, you know, it's the midwinter slump. I'm you, tired. I, I have a senior in high school and he's the last one. I've been homeschooling for the better part of 25 years. And um, I have senioritis right along with him. <laughs> I really do. Both of us look at each other and it's like, okay, let's do it. <laughs> we got to go. We're going to be finishers here. <laughs> you actually mentioned to me in the last couple of days with respect to reading in particular, that it's going to be nice here in the next few months to lay down your reading as part of your job to prepare for your next class, something that you're not necessarily all that personally interested in and start reading solely for pleasure. Oh, I can't wait. I can't wait. I can't even tell you how exciting that will be. Um, I've loved the reading that I've done, educating my kids. I've read a bunch of stuff that I never would have read if I weren't reading to teach. Um, but I've been doing that for 25 years now, and there's some stuff on my want to read list. It's gotten pretty long. The list is pretty long, I have to say. So I'm very excited about the possibility that is approaching fast to read those things. That's awesome. That's pretty awesome. So what do you think, guys? Should we go read Virgil Wander? Is this a, is this a, um, a recommendation or a warning? I'll take it as a recommendation. I think yeah. Peace Like a River earns him whatever he wants to do for a little while. Mm-hmm. On, the, on the strength of Peace Like a River, we'll, we'll read another. That's a good thought. I think I'm in. I think I'll read it too. I got to finish my George Smiley spy novel by John Le Carré at the rate of 30 seconds per night. Which is how I was going to say half a page, maybe. Yeah, and it's dense too. I'm not sure this is the right way to go about it. I think the thing I take from this conversation is um, is mom's warning to read when you're awake. Yeah, read it when you're awake for sure. I'm actually doing the same thing. I we had the conversation about my experience with crime and punishment, and it got moved to nightstand reading. So I'm just making lots of really bad decisions with crime and punishment. <laughs> Which is maybe appropriate for the novel, but I'm never going to finish it. Oh, I had that same experience Making for the same reason, Emily. Nighttime is not the time to read things that really do take your brain, you know? I would have thought a spy novel would have been the perfect thing, but I misjudged no. John Le The Carré. perfect thing is Mary Poppins. <laughs> That's the perfect thing for the, the nightstand. Or, or the house at Pooh Corner. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Are you reading the house at Pooh Corner in your nightstand? As of tonight. Oh, that's beautiful. So Molly Kate, my sister Molly Kate, uh, got me two beautiful uh, Milne compilations for Christmas. And so I'm going to read through them again. It's going to be wonderful. You can't, you can hardly do better than a little Milne with your evening toddy or whatever it is. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Any final comments, my friends? Hearing none, this meeting is hereby adjourned. 
Thanks for being here, everyone. We appreciate your attention. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Bibliophiles. We encourage you in the meantime to go check out what else we're doing at Center for Lit. You can come to the website, centerforlit.com. You can check out other episodes of Bibliophiles on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you get them. Don't forget to rate us in the meanwhile. And also take a look at the Pelican Society, our membership club for people interested in the Center for Lit approach to all things We're all going to be reading Jaber Crow here in a second. Oh, that's right. right. I should mention. Go ahead, Emily. You give the ad. Oh, I well, we do a Pelican book club where we meet once every two weeks, and it's super fun. And we're just finishing up King Lear, and so we're going to start Jaber Crow, which has a very kind of leaf anger feel to it. So. It does actually. There's a nice little um, resonance between Wendell uh. Berry's Jaber Crow and Virgil Wander in Leafinger's story because they both happen in small towns, and the community is really significant. It's kind of a study of community mm. in a lot of ways. I wondered about that when you mentioned it before. And then also the, the theological depth um, is constant in both of the novels, the, the dealing with the problem of pain issue in both of the novels. And yeah, there's actually a lot of resonance between the two. You're right, Emily. Cool. Well, the Pelican Book Club is where the four of us get together and go through novels a little bit more slowly than we did today. We take them kind of piece by piece along with all the other members of the Pelican Society. And we encourage you to check it out and join us. We also talk about plot points. <laughs> we do <laughs> which i avoided you'll you did, notice you did i did fine job. Proud. Yeah. i am proud as can you be. didn't think i could do it did you no <laughs> i did not well if there are no more comments missy and i are going to go uh continue shielding our children from the evil ways of this world <laughs> no you know what see you the all truth is now the they side. do that with me they say mom don't go see such and such i don't think it would be good for you <laughs> if i may be allowed to adjourn until we meet again <laughs> yeah, my okay. friends Happy reading. Happy reading. Happy reading. Bibliophiles is a production of the Center for Lit Podcast Network. Find new episodes each month on the web at centerforlit.com, where you'll discover dozens of resources to equip and inspire you to participate in the great conversation, including the Pelican Society, a membership program for folks who love the Center for Lit approach to all things literary. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Until next time, happy reading, everyone.